Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe November 21st, 2009. This is one of the Saturday morning Biota Live formats. It's uh, currently just uh, 9.45 coming up to the 10 a.m. And uh, it's wonderful to have a number of folks in the chat room who we normally don't get in the evening Biota Live. So I think what I'm going to start doing is probably doing these Artificial Life Workgroup-related Biota Lives on a Saturday morning uh, because the, the participation is just wonderful. We already have Gerald de Jong in the chat room, Ryan Flanagan, and also Bob, who's the creator of Crititing. And certainly, Bob, we've promoted Crititing through Biota Live, through a number of Biota Lives, thanks to Eric Burton. So it's wonderful to have you participating in, in Biota Live through the chat and in the Biota community. So with regards to news and notes, I don't really have a lot of news and notes aside from the work group. Obviously, the pace has picked up through uh, the past two weeks with regards to the work group. The course list is looking rather splendid. I think we probably have more than about 30 courses internationally listed currently, and a number are being added uh, every every day or so. I get probably two or three emails a day with regards to updates, which is how we've populated the, the course list with so many courses so far. But now the hard work actually begins. What we are going to have to do is go through the course list and actually try to survey, get a broad sense of what is being taught as, as artificial life the world over. My original thought was almost that it would be like a Venn diagram, that you would have a series of papers, a series of topics that would be taught in a number of the artificial life courses and we could kind of develop a, a, almost a map of what was being taught in the artificial life courses the world over. But the more that I actually go through the courses, the more that I see that really what we should do is probably just create a kind of outer circular limits associated with the, the, the papers and the topics that are being covered because I don't think uh, even amongst three or four of the courses there is even a group of shared uh, topics and, and papers. So what it's showing is really what Larry Yeager was talking about in the last Biota Live, that there are there's so many different topics that are being taught currently as, as artificial life, and it would be wonderful to put them all together. And that's really the next job of the academic special interest group, the academic SIG uh, that's been set up as part of the work group, is to go through the courses and get a, a broad kind of spectrum of what is being taught as artificial life curriculum, with the view that once that is all brought together, it will be something that students can look at, but also academics that are either considering or currently teaching artificial life or artificial life-related courses they can go to a central location and see, oh, that's really interesting. You know, someone's doing some uh, uh, kind of deeper philosophy or some wet artificial life or sociology even and psychology. It's quite amazing what is being taught. And also the, the various schools that are taking it on. I mean, you'd imagine computer science, possibly biology, and now philosophy, cognitive science. It's amazing the, the diversity of folk, obviously informatics as well, that are teaching artificial life. And I think the surveying is presenting what we originally anticipated with regards to forming the work group in terms of just the, the sheer diversity. There are some areas that are lacking in South America in particular, and I don't want to say non-English language speaking courses, but there are certainly sections in the course list that are lacking. And I'm very mindful from the VITA folk that were involved, Nell and Sally Jane in, in previous Biota podcasts, that the artistic artificial life community, VITA artificial is the term in both Spanish and Portuguese for artificial life. And there's a large community there that we may not actually be currently uh, surveying through the work group. So I, I send a, a request out to the broader Biota Live listening audience that if you know of artificial life courses that are being taught in South America or in the Portuguese or Spanish-speaking world, 
please, please get in contact. Let me know where the courses are being taught. Even if you don't have links, even if you don't have specific information, if you just have a university or a name or a sense that there is an artificial life course being taught out there, please contact me, Tom at NobleApe.com. I will put it into the course list, um, particularly if there's the search stuff that's needed. And it would be wonderful to get a, a broad surveying going. So that's the academic special interest group. There is also an industrial special interest group, a media special interest group, and an art special interest group. And through the industrial special interest group, I, I talked about this last boat live as being a group that was not particularly well populated. Well, it turns out I probably should have checked the mailing list statistics before I made that claim because there were a number of folk there. However, Stephen from the last podcast uh, posted yesterday some interesting information with regards to what they're actually using at Redfish in terms of artificial life software, open source software, these kind of things, the kind of thing that really folks such as myself and Gerald de Jong and uh, other folks who, who develop programs that are intended in some regard to be used uh, in academia or in education could have a look at what's currently being used in industry and get a sense of what needs to be done in order to move uh, their particular projects in that direction. I know Personally, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work currently with regards to Apple, and it's interesting actually tracking the practical nature of developing artificial life software when you're developing it in maybe in concert or maybe in contrast with regards to a, a large company. And certainly that is something that I'm, I'm memorializing in my writing currently because I think this kind of information is really critical. And my hope is through the uh, industry special interest group and also the academic special interest group, these kind of things can be uh, tracked. So obviously what is being taught in universities also benefits industry. There is not a hobbyist special interest group uh, within the work group. I think probably the hobbyist community is actively represented through the, the, the collection, including obviously the art special interest group. So my sense is probably that there there's no real need for a, a hobbyist special interest group as part of the work group, but it may come in the in the foreseeable future. So interesting feedback from Stephen. If you are interested in what is being done with artificial life and industry, Stephen's email provides a, a, a particular direction that he's using uh, artificial life for in, in his own work. And if you look at his sites, and there are a, a number of startups that he's involved with, you get a sense of the what I would consider probably the late 90s element of artificial life as part of broader visualization, as part of broader modeling and simulation science. And that's certainly where I, I came from with Noble Ape as well. I think a number of the applications that Stephen is using currently in terms of visualization and modeling are things certainly that I considered early on in the development of Noble Ape and, and maybe others have as well. I know Brevet is used for that kind of stuff too. So it's always good to have these kind of points uh, particularly when you're starting to talk about how academia and, and possibly even the hobbyist community can move to better serve the, the needs of industry and vice versa. I mean, potentially some feedback from industry as well. So the plan for today's show was to discuss a philosophical problem. And it is the, the value problem as discussed previously, but something more specific associated with the value problem, how one should actually set about creating a solution to it. Because I think as a philosophical problem, the value problem can be a kind of cyclical, um, you know, multi-philosopher participant discussion, but it doesn't actually net benefits for the stuff that we're talking about in industry or academia. And really, I think particularly because of 
people such as Mark Badeau and also uh, Liz Swan, who I hope will be on the call today. The need for the philosophers to actually consider the applied ramifications of what artificial life is and how artificial life can grow, both through industry, academia, all the stuff that we're talking about, I think could be driven by philosophy alone. Now, this is my own personal bent, and it's a matter for a debate. But the interesting thing that I wanted to frame uh, in today's show was the idea that the value problem is an applied problem, and the way that it is philosophically uh, dissected should be done in, a, or could be done, in an engineering framework. We have Stephen on the line. I'll just bring him in. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Tom. How are you doing? Very well. So... The topic for discussion today was to look at using engineering methods in order to solve the, the philosophical aspect of the value problem. And before we start talking about this, it was wonderful to get your email yesterday into the industry special interest group. Would you like to talk a little bit about the email and, and some of the tools that you use currently and the kind of historical legacy of the artificial life tools that you've used. Uh, sure, and I apologize for being late to the call. Who, who else is in here? No one else is in here currently. I'm waiting for Liz Swan to call in so we can we can talk about the main topic. Oh, very good. Um, yeah, so uh, one of the questions was, you know, how are we using maybe Swarm or Breathe or Framsticks? Um, and my response was, uh, we used Swarm in the early, or the, or the late 90s, and then um, Maybe for five or six years in, in 2000 to 2005, we're writing our own agent-based modeling toolkits that were very uh, specific to, to different projects, but certainly weren't reusable or meant for kind of general use. And and then kind of with the emergence of uh, NetLogo and Repast, um, uh, we're, we're, we're using these kind of toolkits, uh, NetLogo in particular for kind of rapid prototyping on the early parts of projects. Uh, and then, uh, d depending on the requirements of a project, on how it has to be deployed, or you know what kind of data we need to integrate with, we'll, we'll tend to go back to rolling our own. Uh, maybe in a maybe if we have to use a lot more GIS or or you know have different uh, data visualization requirements. Uh, but it's really useful now to have things like NetLogo to rapidly prototype and also bring in. It's really easy to teach, so it's it's easy to bring in clients into into the process of agent modeling and also leave them uh, with a tool set uh, after we leave. And, and that said, I was just kind of cautioning that agent-based modeling is not probably strictly artificial life. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's closely related field, and, and, you know, it's one of the tools of complex systems. Um, and then I guess I talked about, you know, other tools in artificial life in addition to agent-based modeling would certainly be uh, evolutionary computing uh, and genetic algorithms, and genetic programming, you know, which we've used for optimization and search in operations research types of problems uh, as you're looking at optimization of flow on networks and, and, and things like that. Um, uh, and then just, I guess, the last point in the email was pointing out that maybe evolutionary computation kind of characterized a lot of the research from my perspective in artificial life in the, in the 90s. And in, in the last couple years, I've been very intrigued and interested in understanding artificial life more from the perspective of uh, Stu Kaufman's autonomous agent idea, of um, which is a much more uh, metabolic kind of approach to artificial life, understanding, you know, defining living systems as systems that reproduce and do at least one thermodynamic work cycle. So if you look at all living systems on Earth anyway, uh, you know, participating in a Krebs or citric acid cycle, uh, and then starting to understand uh, living systems from more energetic flows 
and constraint construction uh, uh, more than the kind of the DNA RNA natural selection kind of approach. Certainly, and I, I think I mean what you're talking about with regards to Stuart Kaufman's definition follows into the idea that uh, intelligent agents in a simulated environment is is certainly something that I would consider part of artificial life. Mm -hmm. So what you're describing with regards to the intelligent agent, and particularly within a simulated environment, is very much part of, I think, the contemporary definition of artificial life. So I don't know whether that would necessarily be controversial in academic circles, but certainly not part of the biota community. We've accepted that term. And the stuff with regards to work cycles and energy modelling is, is really critical, obviously, with regards to intelligent agents and simulated environments. And what's interesting, if you look at discussions associated with inertia and these kind of things, I think the last, maybe it was A-Life 11 or a, I think it was A-Life 11 that my mind's gone blank. It was a fellow at Sussex, quite a well-known fellow, who did a whole track at A-Life 11 associated with that kind of modelling. So I think these are all topics which are very much part of the contemporary artificial life community. And it's, it's something which, as we describe the surveying of the course list, the idea of what artificial life is is very much dynamic and, and continually evolving <laughs> term. Yeah, yeah. And what you've described in a kind of historical context is actually the movement of the term through intelligent agents and, and probably now well beyond intelligent agents. We have Dick Gordon in the chat room asking to distill what the value problem is specifically. Uh, the, the simplest definition that I've given is the idea of uh, how, how does an external observer, someone outside the artificial life community, perhaps even people that are listening in for the first time to Bios Live, how do they understand what the value of artificial life is, the intrinsic value, and how does this value motivate things like uh, developments of uh, uses in industry and also the broader teaching of artificial life, particularly if we could talk just about the academic part of that. There are a number of single uh, artificial life courses that are taught as part of broader uh, curriculums world over. This is what the course uh, list is showing. But the problem is that there doesn't seem to be a track associated with two or three uh, courses where you go through the very basics of artificial life in the initial course and then progressively move through, potentially also going in different directions. Interesting feedback that I received, I think, from uh, Sally J. Norman is that they are setting up an artificial life art the track at Sussex. I may have gotten that information completely wrong, uh, but it's an interpolation through a few emails that I received. So even within artificial life art, there seems to be a need to create a, a academic teaching um, flow uh, where uh, f folks will start with an introductory course and then move into particular areas associated with artificial life. So that's the motivation of the value problem in academia. In industry, it is what Stephen does on a daily basis. It is uh, creating startups and also motivating large companies to start using artificial life in, in a very applied fashion and also listening to what the current uses of artificial life are and strengthening them. And I think what this what our conversation has already highlighted this morning, Stephen, is that the, the, the definition of artificial life is, is relatively broad. And, and in fact, I think as it continues to broaden, there will be more things that are brought into the artificial life community. And what I was interested in discussing with um, Liz Swan today was the idea of simulation science as this kind of broader community. Stephen, are you familiar with the kind of simulation science movement? Is this something that you, you've encountered? And do you have any thoughts associated with it? Um, yeah, I've heard it in different contexts. Um, and so I, I guess I would... Uh, 
characterized from how I've heard it is, um, or what where it kind of distills down for me, is kind of simulation has kind of been uh, struggling to become a recognized third, uh, you know, third level uh, stool of science from, you know, empirical research and you know experiment uh, theory being the second, and now simulation being an equal partner and, and taken kind of more instead of just being a tool of one of the other two. Uh, if, if, if that is, uh, that's my understanding, but is, how are you characterizing it? I think that's a beautiful characterization. In fact, that's probably the best characterization I've ever heard, which regards simulation science explicitly. My view tends to be slightly more convoluted with regards to this notion that things can actually come out of simulation rather than it just being a means of testing hypothesis. That actually yes. that there's, there's a broader underlying mathematics and philosophy which is really critical. Um, in fact, I wrote about it in, in Dick Gordon's uh, book last year. Um, so Dick has, has been one of the, the primary contacts associated with this too. And I think this movement, um, certainly there are people that have come into the biota community, Justin Lyon is, is the, probably the best example of this, that have been strong evangelists in industry for this idea that simulation science is here and it's very beneficial in both an applied fashion but also reaching back into academia. And certainly I think you're on you're on the bleeding edge of that, Stephen, with regards to your work. I'm, I'm really quite interested in what you do. I mean, I I've went through your websites last night and I went through your websites in a kind of precursory fashion when you were on the call last. And this idea of, of the Stuart Kaufman definition from the Chris Langton definition, can you talk a little bit about those two distinctions? So the Chris Langton definition, um, uh, you'd have to help me with, is that life as it could be? The Chris Langton definition is, in fact, extraordinarily broad, but it's life as it could be that then kind of splinters off into all possible directions. In fact, it's still a very popular definition because it encompasses basically what we've already discussed associated with artificial life. But I think the Stuart Kaufman, as you say, is very much focusing on, on it's kind of a macro view versus a micro view. That would, that would be my um, distinction. But I think what interests me with the, the Stuart Kaufman definition, and it's, the stuff that he's doing currently isn't really associated with his original definition, but the stuff, his original definition related very much to, um, uh, as you say, interaction, energy use, and also what it really fundamentally means to be alive as, as a kind of um, iterative uh, process as opposed to a kind of broad uh, life as, as, as you see it. Um, oh, right. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I've answered my own question. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of in terms of the Chris Langton definition, it really brings it, it pulls in possibilities and fields. And what interests me with the stuff that you guys are doing is that you're the the agent component of that, which really Chris Langton's definition obviously covers, but Sir Kaufman's refines, relates to um, or, or not just abstract views of energy, but also chemical processes and things that you discussed initially. Can you expand a little bit about that? Um, sure. Um... So, so let me just also say that this is still kind of researchy and not um, – it certainly colors our perspective when we talk to to firms uh, when we're modeling a system. Um, but the only place where it kind of trickles in right now in the applied way is we, we look from a perspective, you know, what is it that's actually flowing through an organization and, and the type of work uh, that an organization is doing that you know, gives us a handle on what to model and, and these days what to visualize because data is much more ubiquitous. So we can start actually with the visualization of data and using agent modeling uh, to fill in the gaps. Where in the past we used to make a whole model of the whole system with a lot of different assumptions, and it was very difficult for um, 
to, to validate uh, to, to verify the models. Uh, but now we're starting a lot more with the data and um, and, and the flows, and, and again looking at uh, where there's gaps in the data and using modeling uh, modeling to to fill it in. But in the Kaufman definition, is maybe in the email I, I wrote yesterday. Um, one of the things I couldn't get a handle on in the beginning when I first um, I was in his research group at at, uh, at Bios Group, and I, I didn't really understand how to apply that to software and artificial life in particular. Um, uh, you know, it definitely made sense in a physics physics chemistry world, but you know, what does that mean for software instantiations of artificial life, and not just the the, the simulation side of artificial life, but actually, you know, can you have living systems in the computer? Or uh, you know, or wet wet a life. I guess it was more more applied, but but certainly in the soft a life, can you actually realize an autonomous agent? Uh, I use autonomous agent in Stu's uh, use, in kind of in capital A's, is different than say an agent in agent-based modeling. When agent-based modeling is a very simple computational entity, often almost like a finite state machine, it's interacting with other um, entities, and and that is a very um, um, lowercase a. Where, where Stu's autonomous agent is something that is actually uh, detecting gradients um, and, and extracting work from the gradients and constructing uh, constraints to maintain, uh, to, to do further work. And so unpacking that kind of uh, language uh, was kind of uh, maybe a, a couple years of thinking, you know, what does work and heat mean in terms of software? Not just simulating it, but can we talk about uh, these kinds of ideas, and I think you know th there were some early handles where you know a diffusion in in software. You know, if you have a bunch of random walkers radiating from a point, we do talk about that as a diffusion process in computing, and, and people are pretty comfortable with that, which is a, a heat process. And um, so, so one of the ways of defining that is agents, uh, lowercase a agents, as they move uh, randomly in their in their in their space. And they interact. So if an agent interacts with another agent and, and causes that agent to move randomly, that, that's the equivalent of a heat process. So definitions of, uh, say, Peter Atkins has a nice popular book on the second law where he defines heat and work in a very uh, intuitive way, whereas in undergraduate uh, physics, you know, I only got the symbolics and never really kind of got a, a handle on it. But you know, he defines them both as processes. Uh, the only distinction being um, heat is the unconstrained transfer of energy, and work is the constrained transfer of energy. So it's all about, um, you know, how does that, how does action get transferred from one agent to another is the way I would kind of distill that down into a, into a computational sense. So imagine two agents colliding again, and if it's a heat process, one agent will make another agent move randomly, and if it's a work process, it will, it will transfer action into that agent in, 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 in a biased degrees of freedom. So if, um, so if an agent can move in eight, say, surrounding cells, um, and another agent will, will bias it to move in, in, a, in a particular couple of cells, you know, with, with a higher probability. So we've, we've looked at that, like, say, with an ant food foraging um, model and, and tried to get these measures of work and heat and how, how they relate. And so when, when Stu talks about thermodynamic work cycles, you know, it is, you know, when you look at a heat engine, it is converting heat to work, which is something that to me has been interesting that we've only been able to do since the Industrial Revolution, as Atkins points out, whereas converting work to heat, we've been able to do since, uh, you know, ever since we've been able to rub two sticks together or rub our hands together to be warm. You know, that's, 
you know, that's a, that's a more of a trivial transaction compared to all the constraints that that are required to convert heat to work. So that it's kind of a it's kind of a babble at this point. We are trying to formalize it, but it, it maybe gives you a sense of 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 how we're trying to approach it. And if we can if we can distill the the approach part of that, I, I remember reading Steve Grant's papers associated with the creation of creatures. We've had Steve Grant on uh, BioLive in the past. And this is interesting because what you're actually giving here is a third definition. I originally thought this was more like Steve Grant's approach, but I'll describe Steve Grant's approach. When I started developing Noble Ape, I, my background is physics. It was a point, the apes were points in space. The energy was applied to them in very discrete units, and the movement was effectively point in space movement. When Steve Grant created the norms, he created the chemistry, the body chemistry, the absorption of sugars all these kind of things internally within the norms and their cognitive processes all interrelating. And somewhere between these two extremes, I think also of, of Larry Yeager's polyworld because he had at least a metabolism component to what he developed. This was my previous understanding of uh, the Stuart Kaufman distinction in terms of actually representing the internal components and, and looking at the chemistry and, and energy transfers internally within the agents. But what you seem to be describing is actually a third condition, which is where the movement interactions of the agents externally is used and described in, in almost thermodynamic principles in terms of the way some internalized energy is, is transferred into movement. Am I correct in that, or am I more right yeah, in my I original think, assumption? No, I think that's a great way of stating it. Um, yeah, one, is, one would be you'd be simulating the metabolism and energy flows and heat and work processes, whereas in the, the, the third approach would be you're kind of generalizing concepts of work and heat to apply to computational processes. And I, and I, that, and I think that's the trajectory that we're on uh, as opposed to just simulating it. Uh, we're trying to interpret uh, agent models. And, and to kind of talk about, um, to give you maybe a, a, a one bit with this, is uh, this idea of a gradient, uh, you know, systems uh, extracting work from a gradient. So what we've noticed in a lot of our uh, agent models is when you get the emergence of pattern or structure in these systems, um, it, it's heavily dependent on, uh, on a gradient of some type that it's feeding off of. And we've been kind of working to identify, you know, what does a gradient mean in a computational model? And, and just using two examples, one would be, say, a traffic jam model where you have uh, drivers um, that are braking and accelerating. And... And one of the places, so we look at where is there asymmetries of interactions that can be imported into the final structure. So it's, we're looking at the, um, just the, the interaction rules and the boundary conditions and, and looking for asymmetries in those descriptions that would define a computational gradient and how those gradients uh, get translated into final uh, pattern formation. So if you look at, say, a traffic jam where uh, your cars are moving and, um, and they're braking and, and you get the emergence of a traffic jam that moves backwards, say, in the traffic flow. So if you look at uh, one of the control variables in their uh, uh, control parameters would be how asymmetric is it, how much faster, you know, basically they decelerate faster than they accelerate. The braking is much faster than acceleration. But if you relax that... Um, that difference and them to more uh, a symmetric deceleration and acceleration, uh, you lose uh, uh, the emergent pattern. 
Um, so, so we looked at, you know, for those kind of asymmetries in the interaction rules. Another would be a flocking model, say, where you have, and there's uh, multiple ways of uh, realizing uh, a flocking model, but you know, one, one classic way is uh, having an area of propulsion and an area of attraction. And when those are, um, when, when those are different, that the, the, re the repulsion is uh, smaller than the attraction, then you get a nice uh, flocking behavior. But if they're equal, then, then you lose that flock. Right, so so we're always looking at how asymmetries and again interaction rules lead and get imported into the final structure would be uh, a perspective here. And there are two parts to the simulation science uh, problem. The first is is are these models actually contributing back into into new theories? And the second is do you actually require a new kind of mathematics in order to describe? Uh, these things that you're observing, right? So I think um, on the second question, yeah, I have a partner here, Owen Densmore, who's uh, you know very very interested in that in that kind of question. You know, the, the, can, can you formalize these models? Um, and and we don't, you know, we're we're searching around. You know, is, is there something in say evolutionary theory, or is you know, uh, we, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, final solution will be, but I can tell you there's a lot of interest in that. Um, now, does it contribute to theories? Yeah, that, that's an interesting... Yeah, I don't, I don't have a good, good answer to that yet. Um, I, th I think it's, a, it's an interconnected problem. I mean, the, the argument that I made in, in Dick Gordon's book was that without a new mathematics, it will be very hard for simulation science to actually make productive mechanisms back into into broader science because you need a language in order to describe what you're what you're talking about but you need a, a, a level of formalization now who knows if it'll look like mathematics who knows if it'll look more like um you know sociology when it's done fundamentally but i think the 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 thing that's interesting with regards to tracking the development of simulation science is firstly where will this language emerge from what will its syntax be but also can there be some feedback into into science or, or offering back into um, you know something which goes on to be simulation science without this language first? And it's almost a kind of chick, classic chicken egg problem um, in terms of the, the stuff that you guys uh, appear to be doing. In terms of you, you, you mentioned you had a colleague that that has this as a, a kind of primary interest. Do you get a sense of uh, his particular surveying associated with this? Um. Does he see a place where the new mathematics could be coming from, or does he really feel that it is as much his responsibility to create the new mathematics as, as anyone well, think, else's? Yeah, I think he's been um, in, he's been you know very interested in uh, first of all mathematics uh, symbolic representation <coughs> in, in computing and um, and, and you know. Just representing equations uh, in computing, uh, it's still you know the inability to send an equation across email uh, in, in a, in a, in a non-trivial way uh, is is uh, symptomatic of, of of what he sees. I think as um, there is a potential, there's there's a potential for a unifying between computation and mathematics. There's something kind of in that interstitial space. Um, you know, I'm not qualified to kind of uh, to expand that uh, further than that. Uh, you know, he is, um, um, but but I think it is related maybe to what I'm talking about with looking at um, a theory of pattern formation or self-organization. Um, 
where if you think of that as later informing theory in uh, across many different disciplines. So I think this would be as much um, you know, coming out of the you know, theory, uh, you know, complex systems research as much as artificial life. I think there, you know, there's a, a very strong uh, union between the two. Certainly. Um, so, so I think that's um, that would be my point. And I guess the second point I'd make with simulation science is kind of this metaphorically, if you think of computing in the 80s was all about computation. Uh, Agent-based modeling in a similar way started off all about computation. But as you saw, the ubiquity of the web kind of explode in 94, 95. Uh, computing now is, is, is as much about communication as it is about computing an answer. Uh, and, and I think there may be a similar thing. It's certainly happening in agent-based modeling, where it's as much about communicating a system to the stakeholders and gaining insight as it is about prediction. Uh, and I would even argue it's more so about uh, you know, bringing together people around a common model. Certainly. And so I think simulation science is, is uh, there's definitely going to be a role in the communication side uh, as much as the computation. So when you last came on BiotLive, you talked a little bit about simulating Venice and mm -hmm. certainly looking at the stuff, the traffic simulations and things that were on the SimTable website, similar kinds of issues. In terms of traffic simulation and motivation, this was certainly something that I saw in the late 90s that moved into the artificial life community, but not something that's, that's typically now associated with artificial life. How do these simulation models um, relate to the artificial life, kind of contemporary artificial life community, and what, more, what, what kind of greater value can the artificial life community add to, to traffic models and these kind of problems? So I think you know, they share you know, both artificial life community and we'll call it the simulation agent-based modeling community. You know, they share agent-based modeling as a tool set, right? Um, now, I think where artificial life could really contribute, and if we talk about this third, third approach or this um, the Stuart Kaufman approach to artificial life, you know, in contrast to the, you know, the evolutionary computation has already made huge contributions to search and optimization and many operations research problems, right? But the, I think this, this other approach of the Stuart Kaufman's autonomous agents, if we can start to understand systems as more from this living systems uh, paradigm than a mechanical design, uh, which, which is uh, kind of a, almost a cliche in, in a lot of the business management books. But it, there is a theory of living systems that could be applied to, to, to firms and social systems and, and cities themselves. And, and, and maybe it's going to just be metaphor, but perhaps it'll be a little bit stronger than that if, if you think of now, these are systems that do need to detect gradients and extract work from them uh, to persist and to reproduce. Um, uh, you know, I think that would be a, a huge contribution from, from artificial life to give, a, to give a theory of organization that is currently lacking in science. Um, um, we don't really have uh, th th those kind of theories to work from. Certainly. I, I mean, my own experience modeling cities in the late 90s was that I drew from in some regard, ideas that I had in quantum mechanics associated with uh, waves and, and the way you could uh, model uh, economies and also um, this notion of, of people moving into economic centers and then returning to residential centers are, are very much kind of abstract artificial-like principles when, when mapped through these uh, these kind of models. So I, I agree. I think there's a, there's a lot the artificial life community can uh, can add um, to these things, but it, it does return to the 
the problem in terms of, of kind of shared communication. The, Could you say more about that, Tom? Just as the, the waves uh, coming. Okay, you know, so sort of the, quantum mechanics. Okay, effect. so. The background with regards to Noble Ape was that I wanted to model a rich biological environment. And the idea that you could take, uh, for example, where berries grew, where trees came out of rock faces based on a series of quantum mechanical operations, surface, land surface area fundamentally, but also rainfall, sunlight hitting, all these kind of things could be done based on initial wave function associated with in an abstract fashion, the height of the uh, island or, or landscape environment. And that biological simulation method proved very rich, particularly for the areas that I wanted to model in Noble Ape. And around, I guess, the late 90s, I was interested in doing a, a similar thing with regards to urban simulations. This idea, and we have Gerald Jung in the chat, and this echoes a lot of his, his contemporary stuff with architecture, but this idea that the shapes in artificial life in biological environments could also be applied to urban environments and in building, modelling, in the layouts of houses and these kind of things by taking things that have been previously modelled in a, in a biological simulation sense and moving them into things that were more applicable to urban environments. So what I did was took the biological simulation based on quantum mechanics in Noble Ape where there was a, a stationary uh, land wave function, obviously moving light-related ones, and moved it into cities where there were clearly uh, economic wave functions. There was a land, a stationary land wave function, and also this idea of kind of residential centres, which were almost secondary uh, wave functions against the economic ones. And through modelling both the stationary and active wave functions, and then, as you say, applying gradients, which are typically roads are in, in tangent to these gradients, uh, with regards to the landform, but you can also do it in terms of the economic and, and the other aspects that you're modelling. And this is the interesting thing with roads, is it's not just landform, it's also economic. If you, if you model the economy as a wave function, you can do roads with similar modelling. So it was taking the biological modelling methods that I've developed in Noble Ape and moving them into modelling cities. And what I found in parallel was that there were a group, there was a group in Berlin that was doing something similar with regards to shopping patterns through Berlin, and they had an economic wave function model as well that they were using. So I found that the, what was fascinating, and I've, this is echoed through BioLives previously. We've had people on that have had backgrounds with artificial life of plants and also putting plant-like structures into games. And the point that I've always made back to them is a lot of this is also applicable to things like city simulation. And also, we have Bruce Damer on periodically, and he does simulation for NASA with regards to planetary simulation. And I think as, you know, as, the, as the futurists get more and more involved with NASA, and particularly projections, you can use a lot of these fundamental artificial life methods or things that are developed with Noble Ape and, and other folks that developed in their artificial life simulations for a wide variety of problems. So yes, has, has, that answered, has that answered your, your question? Yeah, very, very good. Thank you. Um, and what fascinates me about what you're doing is that it, it seems that you're picking up on aspects of this in mapping it back to agents. And this is the thing that fascinated me with the folk in Berlin was that I, I guess there were agents in the stuff that I was simulating for cityscapes. Initially, it was just the cityscapes and the movement of, of traffic in, um, in flow. Uh, but distilling it down to agents and using similar principles, I think, is, you know, is a fascinating process. The, the principles that we've developed with regards to, in my case, using quantum mechanics wave functions as means as operators in these environments 
these are things that need to kind of flow back into the broader discussion. And I think what interests me with regards to agent-based modelling in particular is that it's picked up uh, by sociology, psychology, and used to kind of filter back into their disciplines as well. And this is the thing that interests me with regards to simulation sciences. It's not just talking back to the sciences or offering modelling methods to the sciences. It's something which actually flows. Um, well, I guess you, one may consider in, in this country at least the social sciences as part of the sciences as well. Mm -hmm. um, so very interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. Um, just kind of maybe a follow up to to your point in the, in, on, on the quantum mechanics. So, so I think if you think of thermodynamics as kind of uh, coming around from you know last century and just you know in my thinking just trying to import that into agent modeling. I, at some of the conferences, I've heard you know, people trying to interpret maybe from a quantum mechanics. Uh, uh, viewpoint, which which I'm certainly uh, n no expert in, but I find it interesting in Kaufman's latest book, he's starting to lean into the direction as well. So I just um, this uh, reinvented uh, the sacred. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that uh, yet, which is kind of trying to, um, I think, have a, a rational discussion or saying there's kind of a middle way between uh, neo-Darwinism and, and kind of intelligent design. So there's something kind of a there's a dialogue to have to be had uh, kind of in, in the middle there. Um, that, was, that was Dick Gordon's book fundamentally. We have we have Dick Gordon in the chat. He um, mm -hmm. produced a book which was a series of papers and dialogues last year called Divine Action and Natural Selection, and that that is fundamentally uh, what came through his book as well. Oh, excellent! I'll pick that. I'll pick that up. Um, so, so do you see? Um, is there so some movement in with looking at quantum mechanics and artificial life in the same way that I'm talking well, about thermodynamics and artificial life? I mean, in, in a historical context, I started developing noble life in the mid '90s, and when I started developing it, there was absolutely it wasn't even considered artificial life. I mean, it was very much more the conservative terminology in your original discussion today. Um, so, I mean, when I started developing it, and still it gets raised eyebrows, there just isn't a popular understanding with regards to these things. I mean, I think the, the teaching of quantum mechanics in particular, I, I had academics that refused to use computers when they taught quantum mechanics, and, you know, my own perspective with regards to visualization would have probably made it more preferable if I had computers to actually see these wave functions and how they evolve. But you're right, it is very much part of the same lineage uh, as, as thermodynamics, both philosophically and um, in terms of the, the, the minds involved with it. I think it's an ongoing process. I mean, what interests me with regards to the idea of a kind of unified simulation science is that we can throw these ideas directly into the mix at that level and start saying, actually, there are ways to use these methodologies, these, these approaches that were developed very tightly with regards to, you know, modelling heat and work and these kind of things in other areas. And I think the benefit that we have with simulation sciences is we can actually show um, in, in a very demonstrable way the way these things are applied. I think also with regards to noble cognitive simulation, there was a similar thing at the time using ideas of information transfer through bacterial models and these kind of things seemed very abstract, but it was peer-reviewed and academically published last year. What you see is a very interesting delta. There is a delta between when these ideas first percolate through the artificial life community and through other communities and then 
probably, I'd hate to say it, 15 and 20 years, and then they become part of the mainstream. So maybe we are still riding this vanguard with regards to simulation science in particular. But I think these things are very compelling, and they're particularly compelling through demonstration. It's one thing to talk about these things, to write down formulae, but when you show these things in simulation, when you show them in a setting that anyone can see and then discuss and you know go through the necessary critiquing, it moves from being something which is very abstract and, and somewhat alien to being something which people can be quite receptive to. And when I say people here, I mean the broader scientific community as well. Right. Uh, I think that's one of the contributions that maybe when you mentioned simulation science or you know, the relationship, you're looking for new mathematics of, of computation or simulation. You know, one of the things we definitely see is, you know, if you look at enough models, uh, agent models um, in particular, and you go to enough conferences, you start to almost uh, blank out on what, what people are labeling as their agents, and you really just start watching kind of what are the interaction rules. And again, going back to what are the asymmetries and the interactions and what, what are the final patterns, and you don't really care too much about uh, the actual semantics of, of, of the model, uh, which are in some cases just kind of layered on top. In much the way in mathematics, say, you, if, you see a, if you see a 1 over x squared, a whole bunch of times, you don't really care what the x is. You know, you're going to know what that is going to, what the outcome is going to be. Certainly. And and I think the same thing that simulation science is one of the contribute contributions is you know if you see a say an Ising model in physics and a, a voting model in sociology, you know where you're looking at your neighbors and and, and going with the majority uh, or or staying out of the majority in an, in another case. You know, you know that that's the same model, right? And so, as soon as we get a better language, as we get better languages to describe our models, I think it's you know there's a benefit to say you know you guys you guys need to be talking the sociologist needs to be talking to the physicist, or an ant foraging model, you know it's the same as a, a lightning channel you know for charge dissipation. So you know plasma physicists and now an entomologist can be uh, talking together uh, because the models are equivalent, right? So as soon as we can you know, you know, improve that kind of interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary kind of approaches. You know, modeling is that language that mathematics, I think, um, has served that role. And I think math- uh, simulation has that potential to be that bridge uh, to let different disciplines see that they're dealing with this pretty much the same kind of uh, pattern formation, albeit in a different uh, substrate. Yes, no, that's that's my hope too. And I mean, I'm I'm very pleased to be a participant in this discussion because I think artificial life has a lot to offer and certainly when I started developing Noble Ape it was very much based in the idea that the, these boundaries existed and these boundaries needed to be broken down in order to make any kind of meaningful change and I think certainly that's that's what you're echoing as well. In terms of the broader artificial life community based on the fact that Baudelaire has listened to a wide variety of people, academics, hobbyists, people that have a broader interest in artificial life, expert users, these kind of things. What more would you like to see from the artificial life community? Yeah, I think last week I mentioned just uh, um, you know, tool, you know, tool sets, better tool sets, uh, maybe common, common tools to use. Um, yeah, I don't... Uh, uh, continuing to push out you know, the definition of what is a living system, you know, uh, refining that and then getting simulation and getting measures uh, of... Uh, living systems, and you know, I think that it's one of these questions that we'll keep pushing out as our as our definition gets a little bit uh, more and more complex um, or, or, or sophisticated. 
Um, so I you know, keep, keep pushing the definitions and, and challenging challenging uh, folks to get it instantiated in, in, in the software side. You know, so, so I'm, I'm more on the soft side than the web side. Um, so, so that, that would be my, you know, you know keep, keep, keep moving in that direction. Do you think there's going to be a broader unification of the term artificial life with regards to uh, wet, soft, and hard in the foreseeable future, or do you think they're going to continue to diverge? No, I think they'll. I, I, I hope and I, I suspect they'll become much more unified and in, 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 in defo- you know, I, I think it's more with you know, is there you know, is there a, is there a stronger definitions or consensus on you know what is a living system? Uh, and and I, I know there's others that will say well that's not even even the question is posed uh, incorrectly. But I think as, as as it moves away from you know the evolutionary uh, computation definitions and more into um, kind of this, this pattern formation and kind of Kaufman's uh, definitions as as one potential. Um, I think there's a stronger potential for unification. Terrific. Well, Stephen, it's been a somewhat impromptu, somewhat uh, <laughs> multi-directional bio to live, but I'd like to thank you for the for the chance to chat today, and I'm I'm sure you're going to participate in in future bio to lives, and also I really look forward to. Uh, continuing to work with you through the work group. And for folks who are interested in participating in the work group, go to the Biota website, biota.org slash podcast. There'll be a link through to the work group. We are growing in numbers in the work group. Uh, however, I would like to emphasize the fact that it is a work group. There is stuff that's going to be going on through the work group that will require probably between half an hour to an hour, maybe every week, maybe every other week. And particularly when we look at the courseless surveying, uh, the need for people to actively participate and actually go through courses to contact academics and to get a broader sense of the surveying is, is really needed through the work group currently. But it is a wonderful opportunity for you to extend your own listening interest to BioLive and actually get a sense of what's going on on the ground. And certainly, Stephen, you've provided that uh, today. So thank you very much for, uh, for the chance to chat with you. Thank you, Tom, and thanks to everyone else. Thank you.